With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. We didn't sign anything today. It didn't quite work out. I would say that I wasn't satisfied and perhaps he wasn't satisfied. Good relationship. But I decided that this wasn't the right time to sign something. So we'll see what happens over a period of time. President taking the dramatic step of announcing he will withdraw from a landmark Cold War era arms control treaty because Russia has been cheating for years. Those new signs, North Korea may be ramping up its missile program. On the heels of last week's summit, experts are now pointing to clues in new satellite images. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. So the president is still a racist sheet con man. That's Racheco, as his ex-buddy Michael Cohen put it last week. Hey, can we agree that Michael Cohen's opening statement in last week's public hearing before the House Oversight Committee was a masterpiece of elegance and simplicity? Those topic sentences, those supporting documents, I loved it. Mr. Trump is a racist. Mr. Trump is a cheat. Mr. Trump is a con man. I mean, it makes me want to go back and rewrite my Bobcat project in fifth grade to get that kind of clarity, that bing, bang, bongo. I mean, I packed my Bobcat project with so many words and tangents trying to be impressive, and I lost the point. So here's retroactively my effort at a Cohenian-style redo of that project. The Bobcat is a cat. The Bobcat is a predator. The bobcat is not a racist. But Mr. Trump is. And it's nice to have that case closed, even though that's been the consensus about Trump for, oh, around 50 years. Which brings me to Tim Wu's fantastic opinion piece in The New York Times. I had struggled to put what he put into words, and he just he just does it. What he said is, America is not polarized. Trump's would-be base is about as solid as his big rock candy wall. A vast consensus on major issues, in fact, exists from sea to shining sea. About 75% of Americans, he says, favor higher taxes for the ultra-wealthy. 67% want a federal law that would guarantee paid maternity leave. 83% of us favor strong net neutrality rules for broadband to make a more equitable internet. And more than 60% want stronger privacy laws. One last one is 71% think we should be able to buy drugs imported from Canada and 92% want Medicare to negotiate for lower drug prices. So basically, forget about the polls that say, do you approve or disapprove of the Trump show? These issues are the things that we are remarkably united on. And so Tim goes on to say, and I just got to quote this because it's so good. The defining political fact of our time is not polarization. It's the inability of even large bipartisan majorities to get what they want on issues like this. He says, call it the oppression of the supermajority, ignoring what most of the country wants as much as demagoguery and political divisiveness is what's making the public so angry. And this is just so right. This is the gaslighting. 
anyone paying attention agrees that Fox News, which is searingly exposed as an infomercial for the Trump administration in The New Yorker this week, is fan fiction gone way off the rails. Anyone who can draw breath knows the earth is endangered by climate change. And I don't care what the polls say. Anyone who has ever read a normal news site knows the president is a racist cheat con man, Racheco. And nevertheless, Trumpcast persists. My guest today talking about Donald Trump and nuclear weapons is Sharon Ann Squassoni. She's a research professor at George Washington University. Her areas of expertise include nuclear energy, nuclear weapons, arms control, nuclear security, and nonproliferation. And her current research, this is my favorite, are on new norms for fissile material. So no one knows this topic better than she does. I met her at the unveiling of the 2019 doomsday clock, now set at two minutes to midnight because the threat of nuclear war is as grave as ever. And I will be back with Sharon in just a minute. But first, the tweets. The military drills, or war games as I call them, were never even discussed in my meeting with Kim Jong-un of North Korea. Fake news. I made that decision long ago because it cost the U.S. far too much money to have those games, especially since we are not reimbursed for the tremendous cost. And now that they realize the only collusion with Russia was done by crooked Hillary Clinton and the Democrats, Nadler, Schiff, and the Dem heads of the committees have gone stone-cold crazy. 81 letters sent to innocent people to harass them. They won't get anything done for our country. Presidential harassment. Republican approval rating just at 93%. Sorry, haters. Make America great again. Crooked Hillary Clinton confirms she will not run in 2020. Rules out a third bid for the win. Oh, shucks. Does that mean I won't get to run against her again? She will be sorely missed. The greatest overreach in the history of our country. The Dems are obstructing justice and will not get anything done. A big, fat fishing expedition desperately in search of a crime. When, in fact, the real crime is what the Dems are doing and have done. Joining me on the line is Sharon Squassoni. She's a research professor at George Washington University with an expertise in all things nuclear Welcome to Trumpcast, Sharon. Hi. Hi. So, as you know, we met after your startling and, I thought, wonderfully furious presentation at the unveiling of the 2019 Doomsday Clock. You sit on the board of the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, is that right? I do. It is called the Science and Security Board. Got it. And that's a particular division of it, the board? Or does that cover both climate change and nuclear threats? It covers everything. It covers climate change, nuclear threats, and what we now call emerging technology. Yes, which I remember, I think, from Herbert Lynn includes Infowar, which is something we've talked about a lot on the podcast. And that was very interesting to me. But you really focus on the original theme of the bulletin and the doomsday clock in general, which is nuclear weapons, the current arms races, nuclear security, and the possibility of nuclear nonproliferation. And I see right here that your current research is, and I love this expression, new norms for fissile material. (laughs) 
I just saw Heat again, as I don't know, 15-year-old movie with Al Pacino. And in it, he comes up to Robert De Niro, or someone does, and Robert De Niro is reading a book called Stress Fractures in Titanium. Mm. <laughs> I feel like you might read a book called Stress Fractures in Titanium. I've been known to read some pretty odd things and scare my children. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, scare me a little bit because it was a very potent presentation at the Doomsday Clock unveiling. And maybe you can summarize a little bit what you said that day. Well, I think part of my frustration comes from working on these issues for decades. And mm -hmm. clearly, we made some progress after the fall of the Soviet Union. But we're now back at a point where all the Cold War rhetoric has returned. All of these countries with nuclear weapons have modernization programs. Ours is going to cost over a trillion dollars. And, you know, Mr. Trump and Mr. Kim are doing this dangerous dance <laughs> yes. close to yeah. the edge of the cliff. And, you know, meanwhile, all of this stuff is happening with climate change. And it seems like no one is paying attention. And so the power of the doomsday clock is it's a very simple mechanism to draw attention. We are basically saying, hey, wake up. There's stuff happening that, you know, apart from all the scandal that we hear on a day-to-day -day basis, mm -hmm. there are real developments, long-term developments with nuclear weapons that are pretty troubling. It was interesting to me to learn that the doomsday clock is non-quantitative in nature. It's a way of illustrating the relative safety or danger that the world finds itself in and is starting conversations about those things. That said, there are things that factor into the setting of the doomsday clock. I should just tell listeners it's at two minutes to midnight. Let that sink in. And some of those things are treaties or meetings and expressions of openings of would-be dialogue. There almost seemed to be a case to be made that Trump, in wanting to form a friendship with Vladimir Putin and with Kim, might be moving the clock away from midnight. That those things could be read as hideous as they are, as dangerous seeming as they are. At least the assumption of the clock and the bulletin was decades ago that a meeting is better than no meeting. I think you're right. I can't reveal exactly what goes into setting the clock or I'd have to kill you. <laughs> With that fissile material. Exactly. <laughs> we, in addition to the nuclear portion, we're looking at climate change. We're looking at the risk of emerging technologies, whether it's bioengineering or information warfare gone crazy. But on the mm -hmm. nuclear side of it, you're right that diplomacy and the success or failure thereof plays a big role. And so I, for one, had a shred of hope after Trump was elected, which was that, hey, this guy is so crazy. Maybe he'll be open to some wacky ideas like, yeah, the U.S. could sign the Comprehensive Nuclear Test Ban Treaty. You know, what the heck? Let's go, you know, move forward. Or mm -hmm. let's negotiate with Kim Jong-un. <laughs> so I was happy to see Trump accept the offer of a summit the first time in Singapore last year and this time. But, you know, then, of course, reality sets in, and these guys are not ready for prime time, right? They don't have a set of really realistic waypoints along the kind of path towards nuclear disarmament. It's clear from this last summit that the North Koreans didn't want to go all the way. 
<laughs> and so, mm-hmm. you know, we need probably, you know, 150 pages of backup options to keep us moving forward. I'm not totally pessimistic that we can't get something good still out of this process, but it requires a tremendous amount of hard work and patience. And that is something that I don't think this administration is known for, or at least the White House isn't. I was, as I said earlier, really surprised at how among the disruptive technologies that you all are now taking into account, including kinds of chemical warfare and germ warfare, but also information warfare, cyber operations, that the disinformation and climate denial is more significant a factor somehow than I thought. I sort of thought, what does it matter what people believe if the climate is changing in particular ways? And I think Herbert Lynn got all the way to the enlightenment is endangered, that there's a sort of fundamental pact about how truth is articulated, the role of facts, what information is, what we can agree on to be true and not just recklessly invert the way the president does. Now, I think that also applies to nukes. We don't talk about this very much, and by we, I mean me. I don't think about exactly the state of the U.S. arsenal. It's been a long time since I heard about Kim's plutonium and uranium reserves and where they were, and that was something that really interested Hillary Clinton. They talk instead about a love affair between Trump and Kim. The obscuring of the facts around this current arms race, not just with North Korea, but with other nations that have nukes. I remember Israel even came up an allied nation came up in the conversation at the unveiling of the clock. So maybe you can walk us through the various nuclear powers and where their arsenals stand and where you see any sign of a kind of non-proliferation trend. Right. We have, well, there are five what we call established nuclear weapon states, and those are the U.K., Mm Russia, China, France. The U.S. Right, in the U.S. (laughs) Those countries, they already had nuclear weapons when we signed a treaty in 1970 on no further proliferation of nuclear weapons. So that's why we call them the kind of established nuclear weapon states. Okay. They also happen to be the five permanent members of the U.N. Security Council. So... (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. whether it's good or bad, that is the currency of the realm, right? You get a veto on the Security Council if you have nuclear weapons. Now, there are other countries with nuclear weapons, and those are India and Pakistan, Israel, Mm -hmm. which the U.S. doesn't like to talk about, and North Mm -hmm. Korea. And then there are countries which, there are some countries who gave up nuclear weapons, like South Africa, and also Argentina and Brazil didn't have nuclear weapons, but they halted their programs, both of which when they were under military rule. Mm-hmm. By far, most of the nuclear weapons are in the U.S. and Russia. About 90% of the approximately 14,000 nuclear weapons worldwide. You know, it sounds like a lot. It is a lot. But it's way less than the height of the Cold War, where there were close to 70,000 nuclear weapons worldwide. I mean, so much more than is necessary to destroy the planet. (laughs) Yeah. But still, so the U.S. and Russia are now at about four to 5,000 weapons, and then the others are much lower. So the U.K., France are next in line, then China. And then you have the estimates vary. Most of them are based on intelligence. There have been some statements by 
the five established nuclear weapon states about transparency of their arsenals within the UN, but nobody ever gives really verifiable numbers. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, we think that North Korea may have between 30 and 60 weapons. Israel, India, and Pakistan are all higher than that. Mm -hmm. And so one of the Mm -hmm. issues when you think about, oh, can we go down to no nuclear weapons in the world is how do the two big countries, the U.S. and Russia, come down Mm -hmm. towards the the level of those other countries? And then what happens to stability? So it's it's a really, really interesting set of issues, really complicated, but we're going to have to address them eventually if we truly desire to get rid of these weapons. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. One of the possibly myths of the Cold War to me was that at some point we recognized that Russia's arsenal was not in especially good shape, that they had done a lot of development, but that it wasn't, as you say, modernized by the time the Soviet Union fell, and that we, in general, overestimate the robustness of the Russian economy, of the Russian military, and of the Russian people. I was just reading that a 15-year-old Haitian boy has a greater life expectancy than a Russian 15-year-old now. And, you know, I'm sure you know that indoor plumbing is still rare in Russia. I mean, we picture it always as oligarchs on yachts, (laughs) and the vast majority of that huge country is not that at all. So what I wonder is, what do we know about Russia's nukes in particular? I mean, it makes an impressive number, but how much of a threat do they represent? Well, of any country, they present the biggest threat to the United States. But, you know, remember, after the fall of the Soviet Union, they weren't supposed to be our enemies anymore. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Right. We're in a really interesting time because back in the days of the Cold War, I remember intelligence estimates used to look at Soviet, you know, we had this annual estimate of Soviet military power. And it turned out that the CIA was estimating Russian military production capacity based on floor space, like what they could see from satellites, how big the buildings were, right? Interesting, yes. And of course, we discovered later that Well, some of those factories were empty. Some weren't producing the way we thought they were. And so our estimates were way off. Now, today, of course, we think we have so much more information, right? But some of that is still disinformation. So when Vladimir Putin gets up in front of his National Assembly and gives this fancy briefing last year, about, well, we have all these weapons, these hypersonic vehicles, and it was a really interesting slideshow of capabilities that he doesn't really have now. But he does have nuclear weapons that work for the moment, and there are thousands of them, Mm -hmm. and we are still in a relationship of mutually assured destruction. So, you know, Mm -hmm. either of us could completely destroy the other. So... That's why whatever relationship Mr. Trump has with Mr. Putin, the two governments and countries and militaries need very stable, regulated 
agreements where we can build trust and transparency and we can limit the capabilities that we find the most threatening. And, you know, the Russians will say, it's not so much your missiles. We're really worried about your defenses. Mm -hmm. Because if you put up all these ballistic missile defenses, then that neutralizes our offensive capability. And then where does that leave us? We are completely unwilling to talk to them and have been for years about those missile defenses. We say instead, oh, we're defending against other countries. Mm -hmm. It's really high time that we have a serious conversation about that. We had Gary Kasparov on the show, and he was talking about Putin. And I think he said he dislikes any mention of chess in the context of the Russian president because he's not a chess player, he's a poker player. One of the things that appeals to Kasparov, I think, about chess is that all your resources are on the table. Everybody knows how many bishops you have and how many pawns you've taken and so forth. But with poker, nobody knows what you have. And I still think this idea that Trump would get into a very bipolar emotional relationship with the president of the Russian Federation without any transparency about what he has. I mean, leaving aside even that Trump may not be getting national security briefings, he doesn't accept the intelligence that the Russians tried to hack the 2016 election. He otherwise believes Putin, believes Saudi Arabia when they deny involvement in human rights abuses and so forth. So the stuff we used to talk about during the Cold War, asymmetrical information and trust but verify, it's just all gone sideways. It has. And that's part of the reason why we set the doomsday clock to two minutes to midnight. Yeah. We need some mechanisms. We need some more control over this situation. And the thing that really is a distortion is this information warfare. So I think my colleague Herb Lynn put it extremely well when he said our way of life depends on a certain reliability about information. There are no rules of the road when it comes to Mm -hmm. cyber warfare, cyber, (laughs) I don't know what you would call it, insecurity. Yeah. That's another area. I mean, we're loath to seed anything. This is a relatively new field. The same can be said for other aspects or issue areas like space. But there's a big question, what are those mechanisms that can create more reliability across the board? It doesn't seem to me like the Trump administration is really interested in that. But that is, I think, in the long-term interests of the United States. So whether it happens now, whether it happens later, hopefully it won't be too late (laughs) in in -hmm. two years' time. Mm -hmm. But it's essential, I think, really, for our way of life. And it's not just national security, right? It's our democracy. Yes. And I think, in part, everything that happened in the 2016 election, whether intended or not, but the fact that many Americans may not have a lot of faith when they go to the polls in 2020 about their vote having been influenced improperly or not counted right. (laughs) Yes, that's where perception becomes reality. And if we have a squeamish feeling, the sort of dare not speak its name feeling that the election is illegitimate, that makes us a less secure nation. That costs us a great deal of peace of mind and creates this sort of uncanny idea where the president and Fox News and his other propaganda outlets can tell us that he's an extremely popular president who won in a landslide and has all this base support, 
and then cook up more evidence of that online. And for the voters who went in the popular vote for Hillary Clinton, you feel as though the gaslighting, as Sarah Kenzior calls it, is just very destabilizing. It seems itself like a kind of national security risk. Absolutely. Another guest we've had on the show is Alexei Kovalov, who's an opposition journalist in Moscow, where it's not an easy job, as you can imagine. And he and Alexei Navalny, the opposition candidate who has challenged Putin and has some popular support when he's not being jailed by Putin, they don't like that the American media tends to treat Putin like a Darth Vader dark overlord who's incredibly powerful. Partly, they want us to do what you just described doing the Department of Defense did after the Cold War, which is really clearly evaluate what's in Putin's hand, what he's holding. He's certainly good at bluffing, like our president. But in order to make real decisions, I think Alexei said, we need to recognize that he's failed KGB, that he doesn't have popular support. All these oligarchs who are dependent on him are also quite angry at him. And if he ever has to give up his office, it's not going to be a pretty picture for him. I wonder the same thing with nukes. Do we exaggerate the danger posed by Russia at our peril? And is there a way to look more clearly at their current arsenal and just at least figure out what we're negotiating with? Right now, the Russians are constrained, at least in numbers, by the new START treaty. We signed that in 2011, or it entered into force in 2011. It limits both sides. It limits our missiles and our bombers and strategic warheads. Now, that treaty could be extended five years if both presidents just kind of signed a piece of paper. It's really not very much that they have to do. But Mr. Trump has not said he's willing to do that yet. It could be that, mm-hmm. you know, his successor, yeah, we're, we're all sitting around here in Washington debating, <laughs> is there enough time to, you know, do this if the next president does this immediately? Mm-hmm. It's not clear. So right now they're constrained by the numbers at the strategic level. At the intermediate level, we had banned intermediate missiles 30 years ago under the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty. And about four or five years ago, we discovered the Russians were developing a missile that we thought violated the treaty. And so Trump, you know, just this past Mm. fall got out of that treaty, just said, we're not going to abide by it anymore. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in some respects, we're shutting the door and we're creating a bigger problem potentially with the Russians if they have the money to actually build new nuclear weapons. We know they have enough fissile material. If they want to take material that they've stockpiled or put in storage and build up their numbers, they may be able to do that uh, legally in Hmm. 2021. As far as strategic weapons are concerned, if we don't renew that treaty or, or engage in some kinds of negotiations with them. And it looks like they're on track to do that at the intermediate level. I don't think that that poses a bigger risk to Europe than it does Mm -hmm. to the United States. And I'm still scratching my head trying to figure out why the Europeans' hair is not on fire over this. Because Hmm. certainly in the 1980s, when we first had this discussion and we deployed intermediate range ballistic and cruise missiles in Germany and Hmm. other countries in Europe, it was a huge political, you know, provoked all kinds of mass protests. I was a protester there. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But um, (laughs) revealing my age, but... We may be making the problem worse. But again, 
Will they have the money? Will we have the money? Mr. Trump is now saying we're going to make, you know, he personally, I think, wants America to have as big an arsenal as we can get. But nuclear weapons competes with all the other military priorities. And for most military officers, I don't think nuclear is the most important. Let's talk about the other nuclear powers in addition to Russia and the United States. I guess we got to go to North Korea and India and Pakistan, which I don't know where the president, I don't even know if he could find India and Pakistan on a map, but let's talk about North Korea. (laughs) You know, part of the beauty or the horror of the Trump administration is the roller coaster ride we've been taking with North Korea. You know, in the past, the leaders of North Korea provided most of the theatrics. But the U.S. president or secretary of state or secretary of defense often did not engage because, you know, it was just a crazy North Korean dictator. That's changed under the Trump administration. We've gone from North Korea being the greatest single threat because we believe they achieved a capability to actually send a missile far enough to reach our homeland with a nuclear warhead on top of it to, you know, Trump and Kim are in love. And after the Singapore summit, the nuclear threat was no more and every American could sleep better at night. So what's the real story? North Korea continues certain elements of its nuclear weapons development and its ballistic missiles. It's not testing. You know, it cratered its test site Mm -hmm. with journalists looking on. But that doesn't mean much. You know, they can open up future nuclear test sites. They have stopped testing their ballistic missiles. And they have said, look, we don't need to. We've tested, uh, you know, proved our concepts and we're ready to negotiate. It's rudimentary, (laughs) whatever capability they have. Mm -hmm. They've certainly gone further. You know, we, we put a freeze on their program in the 1990s when we had an agreement with them to stop at least producing fissile material, stop producing plutonium for weapons. That was before they tested. The Mm. Bush administration, W, came in Mm -hmm. and blew up that agreement. They said, oh, we don't trust the North Koreans. We know they're doing something on uranium enrichment. And as a result, the North Koreans said, okay, if you think that, goodbye. (laughs) We're going to kick out Mm -hmm. the international inspectors. We're going to get out of our treaty obligations. You know, we'll see you later. So that was in 2003. Then, you know, we had their first nuclear weapons test in 2006 and then five other tests since then. So they've, you know, steadily, they, they don't have a lot of money, but they put a lot of money and effort into this weapons program because they see it as the ticket to prestige. They see it as the way to get the U.S. attention. And so the last two years, there's been a lot of attention on them. But right now, they're trying to negotiate, in my view, some, they're going to give up some of their program, not all of their program, at least not for a good long time, but in exchange for some real benefits, so stopping of certain kinds of sanctions. The Mm media has been back and forth on what exactly happened in those meetings in Hanoi. Did Trump think he was really going to get them to give it all up and go home with missiles Mm -hmm. in in Air Force One? (laughs) Who knows? Who could tell? And something weird has to happen for Trump to call it a failure. So that also was very striking. I don't know if he's managing expectations, but I mean, he didn't storm out like I can't do anything with this guy, nor did he come and play it as a victory like he did in Singapore. It was ominously un-Trumpian. Like it must have been something very bad for him not to fit it into his usual story of we're always winning. It's really hard if you don't have an agreement going in or at least 
you know, you don't have 80% of an agreement done before the leaders arrive. You know, based on my experience supporting summits in the past, it's really hard to push for that last 20%. But if you don't have 80% going in, you only have like maybe 10%, then it's virtually impossible to get something real. And I think also that Mr. Trump is probably getting conflicting advice between Secretary of State Pompeo and the North Korean negotiator, our guy, Steve Began, and his national security advisor, John Bolton. Pompeo and Began want a deal. Bolton does not. Yes. The spectacle of more people who want to play statecraft or something, it continues to be, I think, destabilizing for anyone watching at home. Fortunately, I think most of us were watching Michael Cohen testify (laughs) rather than watching what went down at Hanoi. (laughs) Let's talk about, you probably remember, I thought, a quite striking question, although maybe predictable from a reporter at The Nation. I think he may have addressed it to Jerry Brown first, but got thrown later to others about why Israel isn't factored into the equation. It was a very pointed question following on the heels of, shouldn't we befriend, as some of his colleagues have suggested, shouldn't we befriend Putin? Isn't that better for the possibility of peace? And then moved to Israel. Very 2019 lefty kind of question. And yet you all rolled with it very beautifully. So talk about Israel's nuclear arsenal and maybe it under Netanyahu and what might happen with Netanyahu out on corruption as seems to be in vogue these days. <laughs> oh, I, you know, I don't have a crystal ball. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. For Israeli politics. But Israel is always a tough one because they do not publicly speak of their nuclear weapons. They mm-hmm. merely say they will not be the first to introduce nuclear weapons into the region, which is kind mm-hmm. of odd. Yeah. One would hope, right? <laughs> yeah. It's it's an ambiguous, right? You know, they, they don't they don't come right out there and say that they have nuclear weapons, although everyone knows they do. And so there's always mm-hmm. a diplomatic dance around how do we live with this? A lot of countries that, you know, we would have formerly called them in the non-aligned movement, quite rightly point to U.S. hypocrisy about Israeli nuclear weapons. You know, why don't you guys come down as hard on on the Israelis as you do on the Indians, Pakistanis, North Koreans, uh, you know, all these guys Mm -hmm. who have not signed the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. And there's just no good answer to that. You know, yeah, we do have a double standard, although in diplomatic circles, we always call for universal adherence to the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. Mm -hmm. So it's like, yes, we want everybody to give up their... (laughs) Nuclear weapons. You know, the big problem in the Middle East has been, you know, as the Israelis always say, we need peace before uh, disarmament. And we need to address everyone else's capabilities before you address ours. And that includes not just Iran, but also chem, bio, Mm -hmm. maybe a Middle East peace settlement. You know, so there's so many things that get thrown into that basket of things that have to happen before Israel will ever talk about its nuclear weapons, that the only thing you can hope for is really just small incremental steps. Currently, it seems like our historical models keep sort of changing to suit the times, but currently it really does seem like the leadership of like what happens with nukes happens because of the personalities and they're often volatile of these cartoonish 
leaders that include Netanyahu, but also, of course, Kim and Trump. That's a strange development in the way I also did no nukes marches and maybe something of the same generation as you. I think we thought much more in terms of, I mean, I know there was some mano a mano thinking about Reagan and Gorbachev and everybody remembered Khrushchev and eyeball to eyeball. But there was also the idea that, I don't know, there was sort of a a humanism and a move to liberal democracy and that there would be big historic changes where peace and prosperity would be revealed to be kind of fundamental human values and things would change. And I don't think I could have pictured that we would have people who look like Kaisers and Czars just playing at this stuff. Say one more reference to the 80s. Sure, you remember that the grave fear of having a female president was almost always articulated to me as she would go on the rag and be hysterical and might push the button. I mean, normal people would say that. And now we have a lot of male leaders who seem, through some strange hormonal disruption, to be (laughs) on the rag all the time. (laughs) I mean, really, if you could say, like, well, you know, we might end up with male hysterics who do military parades and kooky things and like their power and style their hair in weird ways, and they're the ones with their fingers on the nuclear button, I think I might have said, that sounds horrible, that we should not have men for presidents. And no one would have ever hired you again to do anything (laughs) if you had made that argument. And yet it's crazy, right? Yes. So one of the things I try to do in my work and writing is to promote norms and, you know, legally binding agreements, right, so that we can have a structure, an infrastructure, some machinery that protects us from crazy male hysterics or or yeah. the, the yes. cult of personality. And, you know, the strangest thing happened in 2017. The Senate Foreign Relations Committee had its first hearing in something like 36 years on presidential authority to press the nuclear button. These yeah. guys hadn't hadn't thought that it was an issue for for 36 years. And yet, when you look at the legal infrastructure, right, there is nothing that will keep a U.S. president from launching a nuclear war on his or her own, you know? So some of these things we've left to luck. And you know what? If we've left it to luck, (laughs) what do you think some of these other countries have done? Right. The checks and balances in Pyongyang are maybe not what you think they are. There's not a wonderful opposition, you know, a house that's empowered to really push back on Kim. Maybe you can take me to the point of what an American president contemplating using nukes, what that even looks like. I mean, we say the button. Of course, we've now since learned it's a bunch of keys. But is there really a physical key or is it a set of passwords? And whatever it is, is it possible, as we've heard suggested, that that internal detente around the president has conspired to make sure he doesn't quite know where the keys are or where the codes are? Do you know anything about this? Don't we deserve to know this as American citizens? <laughs> mm, would we sleep better at night? If we knew that, like, everyone was prepared to tackle him if he exactly. went to launch a, yeah. Uh, I, you know, I don't have any inside information. It is a briefcase. Yeah, it's not a button. Okay. And there are codes. But the issue really is 
This system was devised at a time when we thought that the president might have to react to what we call a bolt from the blue, right? So suddenly uh -huh. the Soviet Union, you know, is tired of waiting and they want world dominance, so they launch a preemptive nuclear strike and we've got to do something, right? Do we, do we launch ours so that they're not totally destroyed? That scenario nobody believes in anymore. That's just not going to happen. And so maybe we should modernize our system. Maybe we need to put some more checks and balances. And there's actually legislation introduced in the last Congress, and it's been reintroduced in this Congress, the Lou Markey bill, to make sure that the president can't do this, that there is some consultation with Congress. And this goes back to, you know, Congress being pissed off in the 70s. <laughs> that the president was just marching to war and not getting authorization with the War Powers Resolution. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, there are fundamental questions about, you know, we tend to think, well, it's a democracy, right? So aren't democracies better with nuclear weapons than authoritarian systems? And the answer is probably not. This next generation, maybe my kids, will make us a whole lot safer because, you know, that's what we need. There are a lot of other things we can do we can reduce the alert status, the uh, make it, you know, lengthen the fuse so that even if a president decided that he or she wanted to launch nuclear weapons that would take a long time, take a bunch of days so that maybe the male hysteria would die down. Mm -hmm. But you raised a good question before, which is we shouldn't be so dependent on this top-down leadership. It's if we're ever going to get to truly reducing nuclear risks. Yeah, you need a, a top-down component. You need leaders who are like really willing to make some changes, but you also need the bottom up. You need average people asking questions and saying, you know, just like gun control and high school students in America, right? It's like, we're tired. We don't want to live with this threat anymore. That's what we need, not just in the U.S., but other places. I mean, are the Indians and Pakistanis happy that every time there's a terrorist attack and a retaliation that they have to worry whether nuclear weapons are going to go off on the subcontinent? I don't think so. Yeah, presumably not. I want to touch briefly on India-Pakistan, and then I have a big question for you. What are your particular concerns there? And where are Pakistan's nukes aimed? I'm ashamed to say I don't know. Are they entirely at India? Oh, 110% at India. <laughs> okay. That right. is their, uh, you know, Pakistan considers it faces an existential threat mm -hmm. from India, and that mm -hmm. is the purpose of its nuclear arsenal. India, on the other hand, uh, says, ah, we're not so worried about Pakistan. It's really China for us. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. and they argue, and, and you know, whether that's, um, well, in a way that's ridiculous. Of course, they have to worry about Pakistan's nuclear weapons. And they have to worry about how Pakistan is now thinking about using its nuclear weapons. And this is a trend also when we looked at setting the doomsday clock. You know, it's not just what weapons are out there and what their capabilities are, but how are countries and leaders thinking about using them. And so Pakistan and Russia also are interested in more usable nukes, not the big ones, the smaller ones. And Pakistani doctrine actually there have been some writings that suggest that they might even use nuclear weapons on their own territory to disrupt an Indian conventional attack on them. How crazy is that? Whoa. <laughs> yeah. 
So to disrupt it. So oh, to, to stop it. I mean, hopefully it would win the war, but <laughs> or it would halt India in its tracks. That's what they're hoping. But on their land. On their land. Right. Wow. And with great collateral damage, presumably. Right. As I sat through the discussion at the Doomsday Clock unveiling, I just found pockets of just ignorance in myself that I hadn't thought about in a long time. For one, you know, you mentioned your children, and it seems like millennials are gravely concerned about climate change, climate catastrophe, but talk much less about nukes than I did when I was their age. (laughs) And so I just hadn't kept up on nukes. So I started to revisit some fundamental questions I had. And one of them is, it looks like all the nuclear powers or in the Northern Hemisphere, or at least they're not Global South, Eastern with India and Pakistan, but they're not part of the Global South now that South Africa and Argentina and Brazil are no longer nuclear aspiring nuclear powers. So what does it look like when we're talking about a nuclear doomsday? I mean, just quite literally, if those 14,000 weapons, let's just assume that not all of them are operative, but some of them go off at their intended targets. Is the bottom half of the globe relatively unscathed? The global south, which would be so devastated by climate change, disproportionately devastated by climate change, Maybe this is a silly question. We could even drop it if you tell me it's too silly to even ask. But just in trying to picture what doomsday looks like, I just wanted to literally get into the nitty gritty and say, do we look like Chernobyl all over? What is it? Wow. That's a big question. <laughs> uh, you know, even for someone who sets the doomsday clock, I try not to think about that. Yeah. You know, so how many, you know, I'm sure we pay people to think through how many nuclear weapons would go off, you know, under what scenarios? Would it just be a Mm -hmm. U.S.-Russian exchange? Would the Chinese get into it? Would other countries set off their nuclear weapons? You know, oh, my gosh. If anyone is thinking that, (laughs) that, you know, the U.S. and Russia make the northern hemisphere uninhabitable so everybody moves down to the south, that's not really a good plan. (laughs) <laughs> That's not a well, good survival we're plan. We're going to be too busy moving north to get away from climate change. There are a lot of there are a lot of different ways to slice disaster. The one thing that is certain is that kind of the the life that we know in this country and probably in Europe and the northern hemisphere it would be unidentifiable, uh, you, you know, we, would, we wouldn't, unrecognizable, whether it's because we can't plant crops because of fallout. I mean, you know, you're talking about mm-hmm. when you look at Hiroshima and Nagasaki, which are the only two cities where we've exploded weapons in a war, right? We're not counting mm-hmm. nuclear tests in uninhabited places. <sighs> pretty grim. Yeah. And those were small weapons. So let's not forget yes. that those weapons, which were, you know, between 12 and 15 kilotons, would be some of the smallest weapons of all the thousands of weapons. Mm-hmm. To my mind, it's not a survivable scenario. <sighs> yeah, it's a little crazy. The problem with climate change and people focusing on what they need to do is the time frame seems so long. Right? It's like that frog sitting in the pot that's slowly heating up. 
nuclear is the exact opposite. You know, it's it'll it'll mm. be over in thirty minutes. Right, right. To go back to the clock. Right, which is well, you know, it is the time it would take for an intercontinental ballistic missile from Russia to the United States or or vice versa. So the two are so qualitatively different and need very, very different responses. But the fate of our planet and our our species, honestly, and, you know, all the things we like to do, the kind of lifestyles that we we like to live, depends on our really focusing on reducing these risks. And so ultimately, you know, that doomsday clock is about how close are we to really blowing it? (laughs) We've created Mm -hmm some incredible technology that makes our lives so much better than they were even 10, 20, 30, you know, hundreds of years ago. And yet Mm -hmm. they also carry the seeds of our own destruction. And so ultimately the folks who help set that clock, who think through these kind of existential questions, they're pretty positive about their faith in human creativity, but a little skeptical about the politics of it all. And so, you know, the urgent call really is, hey, humans, get creative (laughs) and work really hard because this planet and our lives on it are worth saving. My guest today has been Sharon Ann Squassoni. She is a research professor at George Washington University. Sharon, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. That's it for today's show. Will you tell us what you think? We have no dread for the Twitter thread. You can thread your responses to this Trumpcast. I'm at page 88. The show is at Real Trumpcast. And then stop by Slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus and just sign up for Slate Plus. Today's the day. It's $35 for the first year and gets you Trumpcast and all of Slate's podcasts ad-free. What a steal for less than $3 a month. That's like two and a half zloty a day. You'll be supporting our entire roster. Go to Slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus and sign up for Slate Plus today. And if you want more Slate news, sign up for the Slatest newsletter. You'll get smartly written updates on the most urgent, surprising, and unusual stories delivered to your inbox daily. To sign up, just visit slate.com slash slatestnews. That's S-L-A-T-E-S-T-N-E-W-S. Our show today was produced by Melissa Kaplan with help from Merritt Jacob. John D. Domenico is, as always, our voice of Donald J. Trump. He's definitely the best Trump out there. You can find him on Twitter at JohnnyD23. And I'm Virginia Heffernan. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. This Green New Deal is a joke. It's a joke. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? They want everyone to build windmills in their front yard, and we all have to wear clogs. I don't want to wear clogs. Do you want to wear clogs? I don't want to wear clogs. They want everything to be solar. They want everything to be solar. But what happens? What happens at night when you can't see the sun, when the sun goes to sleep? What happens? You can't do anything? How's your toaster going to work? You can't make toast without the sun. Honey, I want some toast. Sorry, there's no sun. So I'm with all these generals. I'm with all these generals. And I said, who's got a better idea than the last generals? And he said, I do, sir. I do. We can be done in a week. And I said, a week? A week? How's that possible? Well, sir, all we have to do is flank from all sides. You know what? No one, no, this guy, this one guy had the balls to speak up. And we're going to be out of there two weeks. Two weeks. It's going to be over.
And there's so much love in this room. There's so much. There's so much love. I could talk for four, five, six, seven. Why doesn't everyone come back to the White House? We'll have ice cream and I'll just talk all night because it'll be great. Water pizza. Water pizza. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.